Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. One of the common fallacies in diversity, equity, inclusion work is that it all has to look the same. Whether it's that it has to look quote, woke, unquote, or it's forcing people, whether individuals or organizations, to uh, have a singular approach in simply measuring numbers and uh, checking a box, as it were, for uh, external forces that uh, may be compelling an individual and organization to do this, it's it's a fallacy. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is that diversity, equity, inclusion work is intended to be diverse and to have diverse perspectives of thought, as well as life experience. And one of the biggest challenges that we have in this work is ensuring that, yes, individuals pay attention to diversity, equity, inclusion, because it has merit on its own, but more importantly, and as we'll explore in this episode of Crossing the Chasm, really a focus on what authenticity in this space looks like and its importance in underscoring that not only is it important, but it's important to make it personal and it's important to make it authentic so that way um, the work goes beyond simply acknowledging what external forces are, but really embedding and understanding why it's important uh, to ourselves, to our organizations, and how we can apply principles within diversity, equity, inclusion that help to improve our workforce, but also improve whatever our organizations are doing, particularly in the instance of healthcare, in terms of how we care for our patients. You'll hear today in this episode, a lot of discussion about authenticity, different approaches, um, but also reinforcement of why DEI continues to be important in healthcare. Welcome everyone to this week's version of Uh, our podcast covering diversity, equity, inclusion topics. And today I am joined by my close friend, Catherine Abshire, RN MBA, who is the Chief Nursing Officer of Sound Physicians. How are you doing, Catherine? I'm doing good, Greg. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you here and so uh, happy that you decided to participate with us. And so, uh, as I shared with you before we get things started, really wanted uh, in the interest of DEI, but also to ground people um, in how you got here and and, um, why some of these topics are important to you, just to tell a little bit about your story. Um, And we like taking a couple of minutes, so not your CV intro, but really, you know, how'd you get involved in nursing? Um, And I'll go ahead and ask you the second question, which is how um, any aspect of diversity, equity, inclusion um, really uh, became important to you. So what you got for us? All right, we'll jump in. So um, 
my experience with DEI actually started way before sound. Um, and nursing led me down that path. Um, I decided I wanted to be a nurse at two years old. And I know that sounds strange. And so many people, um, even my my relatives, my cousins and such, you know, they don't know what they want to do with their life. And I've never been able to help them with that problem because at two years old, I verbalized very clearly to my parents that I was going to be a nurse. And I just really feel like it was a calling for me. I never wanted to do anything else with my career. I went straight through grade school and it was all about getting to college and getting my, my nursing license. And so fast forward to nursing, um, I started as a certified nursing assistant. Well, back up a little bit further than that. I grew up in a very small town. Um, population of around 6,500 people. And we all looked the same. And we typically went to one of the churches on the main road. We did have two paved roads and we had red lights and, and all of those things. Um, but we all looked the same. We pretty much talked the same and, and had the same cultural background. And when I got into working at the hospital, uh, straight out of high school, um, I, we didn't have a hospital. The town was too small. And so I started to expand my uh, circle of friends and, and learn about different cultures and different backgrounds and uh, started to see, you know, kind of the, the ugly side of the world that I had not been exposed to as a child of, of people being treated differently and uh, based on any number of factors. Uh, something more personal that happened uh, right before that time is my oldest, my only brother and my oldest brother is gay. And when he came out of the closet to my parents, it was not well received. And uh, that was probably the first time that I realized how hard hatred could be to someone and it could really challenge their life. Then you get into, you know, the hospital, my first job there, and you start to to see people that that aren't related to me, but have really shared stories with me. And and I watched how how their lives were really designed for them based on the environment they lived in. When I became an RN, uh, the first job I had was I um, was accepted into an internship in a neonatal ICU. I was the first new grad uh, for them to accept into a critical care program. So I was ecstatic and very green. I was so, I was such a green nurse, but I was just so happy. I loved my little babies and um, and really was Oh, and I started at the hospital I was born at. So it was even more special to me that I was able to, to start that career um, where, where I was born. It was a hospital in a very poverty stricken area. There was a lot of gangs. I delivered babies in the parking lot oftentimes. Um, it was a crash course in the real world. And when you would be in the NICU, you would look at all of the babies and you didn't know by looking at them what their backgrounds were going to be, what their families, where, where their families came from, what, what their culture was. They all looked the same as far as babies, maybe in different colors, may have had different tubes or different medicines needed, but we treated them all the same. And I started to realize um, as I became more involved in the NICU that they shouldn't actually be treated exactly the same. It wasn't cookie cutter. Um, people had different religious beliefs. 
and their parents would come from a different place of what they wanted to do. If it was praying over their children or, you know, rubbing a, uh, an egg on them to, to try and, and get rid of what they felt like was causing the fever. There was all these different things. And it really started to um, made me very inquisitive about what are we not doing that we should be doing to be better healthcare professionals for our patients. Um, during that ex that time, uh, we were a mid-level uh, NICU, and I wanted to be able to uh, take care of sicker babies. I hated transferring our kids to a different hospital. So I got a second job at a hospital in uh, a larger town that was the highest level. And, and they knew I wasn't going to stay, um, but I was there to really just learn. And it was in Houston, Texas, and it just blew my mind. All of the melting pot. When they say Houston is a melting pot, it is a melting pot. And so I was able to not only learn how to take care of the, the sicker babies, but I was also able to expand uh, my knowledge of how, how we had some room to grow in, in my, my small town, my small area. Um, I eventually became the director of the NICU. We did expand uh, and, and take care of the sicker kids. We didn't have to transfer them anymore. And one of the things I realized soon is that I didn't have any male nurses in the NICU. And I'm like, that's a miss. Uh, we have fathers that are there. And, um, and I, I started to feel that our dads weren't able to connect with the female nurses as they needed to, to, to really open up and talk about how they were feeling and what we could do for them. So I went to the adult ICU and I poached two nurses and I brought them to the NICU. I'm like, all right, guys, this is why you're here. And it it was overnight. You could see a difference in, in that. And so there, there's just been episodes along the way um, of situations I've, um, I've, I've encountered or been a part of or just you know, an epiphany in the middle of the night that we we should do it better, you know, discharge education, things of that nature. Um, last story in the NICU is uh, the, you have children that you get really attached to, you take care of for a long time. And, uh, you know, I've, I've celebrated birthdays after kids have left. And um, there was one that uh, very special child. And I just, it was probably the first baby that I, I became so attached to. He was there for three months and did so well. Um, and I was really worried about him going home because his mother um, struggled with learning disability um, and, and not severe, but but had a learning disability and was also not um, didn't have the, everything as easily accessible as some some parents may. And so we set her up the best we could um, with, you know, again, a small area she didn't have a car, so we we really worked hard to set her up with what she needed and, and how to get him what he needed, and he left, and I worried about him for weeks, and and then, you know, it, it's like you've done your job, and you just have to, you know, go and go with your faith on it, and about three weeks later, um, I was working a night shift, um, and they called from the emergency room, and they said, we've got a neonate, and we need help, and they were calling a code, and wanted me to see if I'd come down and start lines. I said, sure. So I went running down there. And when I opened the ER door, I saw his mother. And, and she, of course, knew me and was very upset and ended up being my baby, her baby that I had taken care of. Um, and he died. 
and and he died not by purposeful neglect or anything like that, but he died because she couldn't keep him warm. And that nearly broke me of how ugly healthcare could be and how, you know, you go through your own personal feeling that you failed him, you failed her. And, you know, what I ended up turning that sadness into, because I did mourn it for a while. And what I ended up turning into is dedication to, to my profession, that there would not be another Caleb that, that suffered the way that he had over those three weeks, because we didn't have the ability to give him what he needed or help her give him what he needed. So fast forward, I, uh, in going back to school and going to the emergency room again just passion in passion to make things better and um and help people in the community that I lived and uh regardless of you know what they struggled with or where they came from I, I knew that I could make the, make it better and um at some point I felt like I could make a bigger difference and I just I wanted to be able to make a larger impact and at that time I saw a posting for sound physicians and a clinical performance nurse. And I didn't really know what that was, but what I did know is that it was focused on patient improvement and, and making lives better, which just directly spoke to me and um, went through the interview process. And it was interesting because people would like give me an idea of what it was going to be like, but all I kept hearing um, was the ability to help patients and improve a, a, in a larger scale than my little 8,000 or 6,500 to 7,500 population town. And so I joined Sound in 2011, and here I am. <laughs> Years later, here I sit. Well, thank you, Catherine. It's a fabulous story, and um, uh, I can, uh, your, your passion for nursing oozes out of you. It's <laughs> easy to tell, uh, even just listening to you, how important it is. You, you were, in telling your, and sharing your story, you had the opportunity to really share, like, some of the changes that you were able to make at a local level in terms of addressing what patients and families needed um, at the, the bedside. And you, you highlighted one, you know, one aspect of diversity. You were just like, well, nursing's a, a female-dominated <laughs> area, and I need to get some men in here because, quite honestly, it was a perspective change. Um, interesting what do you work on now as a chief nursing officer um you know towards that particular aim or is it important for you and your nurses uh, uh, yes i think that it is important to everybody it should be important to everybody i think one of the challenges is that people feel it and, and this was similar to me as well we feel it and we we want to make changes but it may not be classified as dei like i didn't use the phrase dei I don't know, for years. And, and when I was making those changes, it didn't relate to me in that way. I just was like, here's a need. And I think that a lot of people are in the same boat as that, is they may not classify it in the way that it is and realize that the 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 gate, the, the gaps that need to be filled and and why they where they they are classified. Um you're correct in saying that nursing is pri uh, primarily female. Um, for sound, it actually, um, I think we have a larger opportunity to have 
it more equal um, as far as male versus female nurses because we are more of an administrative role and in focusing on the um, ability to help patients, but from a global scale. So, you know, where maybe a male nurse wouldn't be comfortable in labor and delivery, um, they they would be comfortable and as challenged as a female nurses in, in sound. And so um, I think that really looking at the I don't just look at male and female the way that uh, my team is not just me, but the way that my team is able to look at it is in the area, the geographic area, what types of nurses are looking for roles. And so that way, you know, if it, I'm sensitive to the fact of like you go in there and say, OK, we're only going to hire a male nurse and for this this hospital. Well, I think there's a number of challenges with that statement, but there may not be a male nurse looking for a job in that area. And and so really, um, I think opening uh, our view up wider and wider to um, get the best talent, but to make sure that we are explaining our role to where it would include everybody. It, it helps them understand where everybody could do this job, whether you're male or female or whatever background you are, as long as you're passionate about the job, the work that we're doing. So one of the things that's been highlighted in any number of studies is really looking through the lens of what the the background of um, healthcare providers is. And so, but I think we there's also data that that indicates that at least existing practicing nurses are overwhelmingly white, Caucasian, whatever word that you want to choose to use for them. How are you helping to, you know, what's the contribution or or is it important that you're looking at the composition, uh, background composition of uh, nurses? And if so, what are you doing to, you know, to alter that, you know, the the existing um, background and, you know, based on representation for nurses? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think that when we get, when we get applicants, we don't know their background. We, I mean, we get, you know, a resume. So we get the, you know, the type of nursing that they did and their their location geographically, but we don't we don't get that information. And so there's a multi-tiered interview process. And so you wouldn't really know that until you get to the third level of the interview process. It's not something, it's not data that we record. Okay. I guess the, I'm sorry, this is Jay here. Um I guess one of the questions then. To the other end of that, then Catherine, I kind of wonder is like about once they're in the pipeline, once they're working for Sound, how, maybe how do you kind of train them up? So you have a, a nurse that maybe is a lot like you were, you know, town of, of 6,500, um, you know, out of nursing school from that experience. But you also have someone who's maybe international coming from another country and is here. And so I imagine there's a sense of you want to get them the tools, you know, and, and help them grow and, and see these things. So I'm maybe instead of like the hiring part, but like in the development, um, how do you kind of help them grow in, in that DEI lens? Oh, that's good. Thanks, Jay. Um, yeah, so in uh, for all of our nurses, we have a mentorship program. 
and it is where we partner our new nurses with a experienced CPN. And it's not just about being able to do the job, that, that is an aspect of it as well, but it's also um, it, the CPN role is very unique. And so we, we can look at their backgrounds um, in, in all different kinds of, you know, what was your nursing background? Uh, some of the things that you mentioned, where, where did they come from? Where would they have an opportunity to expand? And we can partner them with the mentor that way. Um, we also have regional councils. Um, each one of our regions has a nursing council, um, and they focus on regional specific projects to make sure that, that people are being included and covering all different aspects of, of nursing, but also sound. One of the things that you know, Greg, you have instituted is the DEI champions. And so similar to how I talked about earlier is so many people don't really know what DEI is, even though they may be doing stuff about it. And so I think that one of the nurse specific things is utilizing our DEI champion for the education um, to, from obviously her own perspective, but also bringing in the resources that you do with the DEI Council. And so some of our nurses have never been exposed to anything specifically titled DEI in the, the um, affinity group that is available for some of our uh, nurses if they would like to join that. And, and so I think that a lot of it starts with the authentic education, which is something that I think that we should be proud of as an organization um, of the, the different modules and also champions in each one of our specialties. Awesome, thanks so much for elaborating on that. Yeah. All right. Okay, so I did all my question asking and you did all of your question answering, or not all of it, there's obviously gonna be more stuff, but one of the things that we are very intentional on this podcast about doing is asking the loaded question. Uh, and so far, nobody's thrown a softball. I'm not <laughs> expecting you, <laughs> you to either. Uh, but we got to ask it. So what's your loaded question? So here's my loaded question. Over the last couple of years, DEI, I think, has gotten a lot of attention and it has risen to the top. Top. I even read this morning that um, one of the most sought after jobs is the chief diversity officer. Um, and I think that it's great. And I also think that, you know, FADS, can can wax and wane, and I think that D, the work around DI is incredibly important. So from your role, how do you ensure that it continues to be authentic and we're not just checking a box from you know a, a website standpoint for the organization? That's a great question, and uh, and yeah, I, I will agree with you first. The worst thing that this could be is a fad, right? Where it's the, oh gosh, we've got to have it, and um, because everybody else has it, and you know whether it's um, uh, whether it's George Floyd or whether it's the recent stuff that's that's happened in Memphis, you know we've got to have it because it's going to demonstrate we're a sensitive organization. Um, how do you insulate that? Uh, I think, you know, you know me well enough. I always go to the three, you know, I go to three separate answers. Um, the first one is is the obvious, right? Which is um, that beyond 
creating a title and a role, there have to be resources allocated, right? There's got to be, there there has to be um, an organizational commitment and the organizational commitment usually manifests itself in resources being allocated for that individual to be the job. So it's not just resources to allocate for the job, but resources allocated for the individual to do his or her job. Um, I think this is an accountability. And so organizational commitment means that that accountability flows in multiple directions. And how that manifests itself is that um, leadership is held accountable to um, specific targets in making sure that this is going to happen. And those targets don't necessarily have to be exclusively around representation. It can be in terms of, of we're going to do something and that do, what that doing something looks like is true to who the organization is. Um, not just, uh, oh yeah, well, we did something. We It's a Black History Month and we put uh, you know, we put up a, we have, a, we had a Black History Month, one Black History Month speaker during Black History Month and nothing else happens. And quite honestly, we ignore all the other months. Um, and then at the third, I just finished watching Top Gun Maverick. So I'm going to do a movie reference. Uh, <laughs> is that uh, The third is that it's uh, up to the pilot in the box. Um, I think that the individual who sits in that role um, does play a critical role in what ha occurs within an organization um, in terms of holding the organization accountable for the resources and holding the organization accountable to ensuring that that accountability flows beyond that individual. Um, because if it is an individual push, it's not going to go anywhere, particularly in an organization um, of any size or scale. And so... Um, those are the things that I think are important uh, in order for uh, for the role to be successful, because otherwise um, you're absolutely right. It's vaporware and it's and um, people sniff that out and, and figure it out pretty quickly. Well, I do have actually a question with that, Catherine, if you could elaborate a little bit more. Um, we talk about like, authentic education, you know, knowing how diverse we are. Um, not so much specific to to that education board. Are there any hurdles or advice or anything you would give in terms of like how to achieve that when you have not certainly it sound not everyone looks the same right or comes from the same background. So I think it there's probably a little bit um, of a challenge sometimes to to be able to have education that resonates for all people or gets them to to grow or think outside their box. Yeah, so I like that, Jay. And yes, I would agree with you. I would like to see us. Um, not put people in boxes and and what i mean by that is like we have the affinity groups that that i spoke about a while ago and i think that it's great to the affinity groups are great and i also think that we have to open it up to allow other people to uh communicate and and share those experiences because i think if you have a group you know nurses that started in the NICU and and that's our affinity group and that we only talk about you know our experiences in the NICU and what we dealt with we are preventing someone who didn't start their career in the NICU from learning from us and so I I 
totally support affinity groups. I think they're great. I'm a part of them as well. But sometimes I feel like we may be putting ourselves in a box by not sharing experiences with people who who are different than us. Well, I think that's an awesome point. I, I appreciate that because I guess what, what you're saying is like you, you kind of create an echo chamber, right? And I think sometimes we have to take the reverse and how do we get that affinity group opportunity to listen to other people? I like, guess essentially what you're saying, which I think is is super helpful. And I think a lot of times we're so busy trying to drive the ship one way, we don't take the time to think, wait, we need to get some feedback in terms of where the direction needs to be going. Yeah. Yeah, because to me, change is necessary all the time and I think will always be necessary. But to really have the effect of change, we have to be able to share our authentic selves with what's happened, what is happening, and what needs to happen. And if you isolate yourself to just continue to mull over it, it's not going to drive the solution that we're all seeking. And that's my opinion. I think awesome. it's a great I think it's a great point, Catherine. So how in your role, when you're obviously in a senior leadership role, how do you individually promote safe spaces? And how do you promote people having these really challenging conversations about stuff that's frequently quite personal? Good question. Um, I, I've i worked really hard to, you know, even though we're, we're across the nation, you know, the open door policy kind of thing, um, but I seek out the, our nurses. And, and I have worked over the 11 years in sound, I have been really honored to work with nurses that trusted me enough to share with me. And, um, and once that reputation gets around, more of your nurses will share with you. And so I think that I was lucky early on to establish that within my team that I did care and that I was authentic um, and I wasn't just checking a box. Um, and I routinely have just one-off phone calls. You know, when it comes to things, the personal nature, it's it has nothing to do with chain of command. Um, we're all human. We all struggle with things. Um, when the the most challenging couple of years, George Floyd, you mentioned, you know, even the things that are happening today, we can't shy away from it. I didn't. Um, obviously, I don't look like George Floyd and 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 did not have his background, but I do have a heart and and I do believe um, of the needed the the change that is necessary and in being a part of that change. And so I just I don't shy away from it um, and am unapologetic and the changes that need to be made and. Um, you know, people make mistakes, people misstep, people say things that they, you know, they're unaware of their biases at times. And I think that it is upon me as a leader to not only hear when I have misstepped or when I have a bias that I haven't recognized, but to also share that feedback with with my colleagues um, and with my team. And so I, I do do that unapologetically and and plan to continue that. That is that is who I am, how I'm built and who I am. Um, also, we do 
uh, survey feedback um, that can be done in more of an anonymous way if people aren't comfortable having the conversation. And I share that unfiltered with the rest of them, um, of the team. And we work as a leadership team, nursing leadership team, to make sure that we are creating a safe space. Um, and even if it is, you know, just direct phone calls, I'm starting something new this year, which the nurses don't know about. They'll know about in a couple of weeks, but it's called Chat with Cat. And it is 30 minute calls, just one on one with me for every nurse in sound. And my hope in that um, nurses that aren't as comfortable sharing their voice on an open call or filling out an anonymous survey because they don't believe it's anonymous, <laughs> you know, all of those things is that this gives them some one-on-one -on -one time with me, just me. Um, and I always encourage people to use their voice and, and be the leader of change. And uh, I, my hope is that this one-on-one -on -time, one -on -one time with them um, will glean more information of how to strengthen our team, not just with DEI, DEI but with everything. Got it. And then I guess one question to follow up with that. I'm wondering if, if you can give a little bit of advice. I'm thinking... You know, listeners are more like myself who it's a little bit scary to have hard conversations, especially if you're driving the ship. Um, I, I know, you know, you do a great job of that, but I wonder if you have any advice to people when, you know, if they're trying to, to kind of take from your example, if they're trying to talk to their teams, but they're a little nervous because, you know, they're going to come from one point of view and some people in teams will come in very disagreeing. Like how, how do, any, any advice or, or suggestions on how they approach those conversations or how to have those difficult ones, not so much about personal, but when they're trying to give some feedback or direction, things like that. Yeah, so that's a great question, Jay. So I uh, would first encourage people to research the ladder of inference. And that has brought me a lot of um, information and education. And it basically uh, teaches you, um, you know, how people respond based on previous thoughts or beliefs and things. And in understanding that helps you understand other people, but it also helps you understand yourself. And so I uh, started with that years ago. I still use it. I have it on my desk right now. Um, and... I think that oftentimes as leaders, we have the pressure of getting it perfect. And when you are talking about something so personal and, and important as DEI, it's never going to be perfect because from your heart, it's ugly at times and, and it's hard to describe and it's emotional. And, you know, I, like I share with y'all, my, my love for DEI came back 25 years ago. And so you can't put that in a pretty picture with a bow on it. And so my advice to other people, leaders or not, is to be your authentic self, spend some time ensuring of your own bias and not denying that you have it because we all have them um but but making sure that we are comfortable with ourselves and then when you speak to that person you want to come from your heart and and you have to forget about trying to check a box and did i say it just like this person said it you know uh, greg and i are very close friends but i don't talk like him and uh and and he doesn't talk like me but we have some very authentic, heartfelt conversations. Um, and if you establish that with your teams, um, they're going to give you grace. And just like you're going to give them grace, um, because it's such an important thing that we have to 
evolve and and improve. And we can't do that if we continue to just hold people to a standard that they're unable to meet at this point. Thank you. I, I appreciate that answer. Incredibly well said. So um, we are almost at our time, and I wanted to see if you had any final thoughts that you wanted to part with. I think what you just did probably may be it, but, but I wanted to ask anyway if there was anything that you you mentioned the, the letter of inference, and we're going to make sure that there, those are in the, the show notes afterwards, so that way people have access to it. Is there anything that you've read, anything that you've looked at, uh, that anything that you would want to leave people with in terms of thoughts about, um, you know, your your approach to DEI awareness um, and and being open and having those uh, conversations? Because um, we do talk in this and other episodes about mentorship as well as modeling behavior, and you gave us those examples as well. But anything else that you want to leave us with? Yeah, I think that I would really encourage anybody that's listening to this um, or any of your podcast is to not rely on your chief diversity officer at your place of employment to teach you everything you need to know and make you the, this this person that's driving change. Um, as I've involved in, in leadership and as our world has evolved to what it is today, I have sought it out myself. Um, I recognized very early on that that everybody in my town was the same, and I wanted to know about everybody else because if if we're all leaders, somebody's looking to you as an example, whether you have a leader title or you don't. Shopping at the grocery store, people are looking at you and you are leading by example. And so don't wait for a leader to give you the end all be all of DEI. I think that you should do your own research. And um, there's a plethora of information, YouTube videos, there's books, there's articles. But this is so much more than just you being a better professional. It is about you being a better person and and really exampling behavior that we should we should all strive to do. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a Sound Physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.